You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Therefore, be alert! Since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But, I, but know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master finds doing his job when he comes. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says in his heart, my master is delayed and starts to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, that servant's master will come on a day he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed and they all became drowsy and fell asleep, In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom! Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise one, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps, they're out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who buy oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, but the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open for us. He replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five, to another two, and to another one, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey. Immediately the man who had five talents went, put them to work and earned five more. In the same way the man with two earned two more. But the one, the man who had received one, went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. 
Share your master's joy. The man with two talents also approached. He said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. The man who had received one talent approached and said, Master, I know you. You're, you're a harsh man, reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I, I was afraid and went off and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. His master replied to him, You evil, lazy servant! If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers and I would have received my money back with interest when I returned. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing servant into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is it possible to move this over? Just, I'll just move it just like that. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Aaron. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at Darabin Prezi. It's a real joy to be uh, back in person preaching this afternoon. Uh, if you missed what Martine mentioned earlier, we've got an online welcome card. You can access it via our website, and there's an outline of my sermon on there if, that's, if you're the sort of visual person that likes to follow along with points on a page, that kind of thing. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this, your word. And we ask this afternoon uh, that you would uh, so work in our hearts and minds by the power of your word and spirit uh, that we would be all the more prepared for Christ's coming. In his name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Sorry, everyone. There's uh, some uh, difficulties with mask wearing and putting mics on. It's very difficult to, to get both things happening at the same time. Anyway, so Martine's already asked you guys, maybe if she's gotten the juices flowing. I, I am wondering how it is that you feel about surprises. Uh, in my conversation uh, that Tim and I had, uh, the basic response, I think, was, well, it really depends on the type of surprise. Uh, some surprises are really quite pleasant, aren't they? And maybe you've experienced this during lockdown. Uh, a few times during lockdown for us, uh, people have dropped some wonderful surprises at our door. Someone, I think, dropped some chocolate brownies one day. Someone dropped some homemade sourdough because everyone got into their ISO baking. Uh, I think some homegrown fruit and veggies even appeared on our front door. Uh, the people, uh, some neighbours across the road grow some wonderful fruit and vegetables and they sometimes appear. Those, those are wonderfully pleasant surprises, aren't they? Uh, but some surprises aren't so pleasant. Like the other day, I was walking, if you don't know, I've got a vision impairment. I was walking along the, the grass nature strip out the front and discovered that I'd stepped on dog poo. Right? Not such a pleasant surprise. At one time, Gabby and I were going for a drive down on the Great Ocean Road. She got in the car she was driving, put down the visor, and right in front of her was a dirty, great big huntsman. 
on the, you know, I don't know if you've had that experience before, but Gabby kind of, yep, she was very calm actually, she did well. Uh, some surprises just aren't so pleasant. So the big question today is, how do we prepare for Christ's coming so that we experience his coming as a pleasant surprise, not an unpleasant surprise? Because the fact is, it will be a surprise. Right, take a look in verse 42 of the passage. Chapter 24, verse 42. Jesus says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Either therefore there looks back to verses 36 to 41, where the, the point was the same. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be a surprise. Uh, so you really must keep watch. You've got to be alert. You've got to be prepared. Uh, so the question is, how do we prepare? Well, in chapter 24, verse 43, to all the way through to chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus tells, this microphone is still making lots of noise in my ear. Is it making noise in your ear? Anyway, to, so this big chunk all the way through to chapter 25, verse 46, Jesus tells five parables to answer that question. How do we prepare for his coming? Uh, today we're going to look at the first four. Next week we'll look at the fifth parable. So take a look first at the first parable, verses, 23 and, uh, uh, verses 43 and 44. Uh, it's the parable in which the thief surprises the careless homeowner. Take a look in verse 43. But understand this, Jesus says, uh, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, uh, he would have uh, kept watch and wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also, Jesus says, must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So you notice that verses, uh, in verses 36 to 42, the emphasis was on what we don't know. But you don't know, Jesus says, the time, the day, or the hour when I'm coming back. Uh, but verse 43 literally starts, but know this. But understand this. This is what you do know. What you do know is that you must be prepared at any moment. You must be ready. You must be alert. Uh, and Jesus uses this illustration of a thief breaking into someone's home. Uh, of course, if you knew the exact time and hour, uh, the day and hour uh, of when a thief was going to break into your house, I imagine you'd be ready for them. Maybe you'd be sitting there with your baseball bat or something. I don't know what you'd be doing, but you'd be ready to go. Uh, and the reality is you could be quite careless with keeping watch most of the time. And just be careful at keeping watch when you knew the thief was coming. And of course, this, this homeowner in the parable, like us, doesn't know when the thieves are coming. So they've got to be ready all the time. Right? They, don't know, they don't know when the thief is coming. They don't, when the thief, don't know when the thief isn't coming. Likewise, we don't know when Christ is coming. We don't know when he isn't coming. So we've got to be ready all the time. And so how is it? that we can be ready for Christ's return. Well, what does it look like to be ready? We get some idea from the next parable, the second parable in verses 45 to 51, where the master surprises the wicked servant. I Take a look in verse 45. Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food, at the proper time. 
Uh, so here we've got a master. He, he must be a, a really quite wealthy master uh, because he's got different levels of servants or, or literally slaves in his household. In saying that he's got slaves in his household, uh, Jesus, in using this illustration, is not endorsing slavery right? any more than you might think he was endorsing thief in the previous parable. It's not like Jesus is like, oh, we should all become thieves. No, it's just a, it's a picture. Jesus is taking a situation from the everyday life of his disciples and he's using it to make a spiritual point. So Jesus says that this master uh, puts one of his slaves in charge of all the other slaves in his household. His job is to make sure all the other slaves get their food and drink at the proper time. And in verse 46, Jesus says, it will be good for that servant, literally happy for that servant, blessed for that servant. If you remember the start of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount back in chapter 5, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. This is the same word. It would be good, blessed, happy for that servant uh, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. If the servant is faithfully doing what the master has asked him to do, it will go well for him. It will be happy and blessed for him. Indeed, in verse 47, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Right? He'll get a promotion. He won't be just in charge of making sure servants, uh, the other servants get their food at the proper time. He'll be in charge of all the master's possessions. Uh, A wonderful blessing. But, Jesus says, verse 48, suppose that servant is wicked and in his wickedness he says to himself, my master's staying away a long time. Uh, And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. And maybe you can get a sense of this servant's train of thought. He thinks to himself, gee, my master's been away for a really long time. You know, maybe he's never, ever coming back. Maybe I'm never going to have to give an account to my master for my service. I may as well just enjoy myself. So what does he do? He uses his position of authority not to faithfully serve his fellow servants, but to fiercely beat his fellow servants. He uses his position of authority not to ensure that his fellow servants get the food that they need, uh, the food that they need, but to ensure that he himself is fed and cared for, to gorge himself. Now, of course, the problem for this wicked servant is that even though his master's away for a very long time, he actually still comes back. I take a look in verse 50. Jesus says, the master of that servant will come. But the master's return might be long delayed, but it is certain. This servant will have to give an account to his master. And Jesus says the master will return on a day when the wicked servant doesn't expect him and at an hour uh, that he's not aware of. It's going to be a surprise. It's going to be unexpected. And in this case, it's going to be a horribly unpleasant surprise. Verse 51. The master will cut the wicked servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites uh, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's pretty grim, isn't it? But cut him to pieces, well, it kind of means what it sounds like it means. 
Right? Sometimes you think, oh, maybe there's a way around this, but no, that, that's, that's what it means. Cut him to pieces. It's a really severe judgment, isn't it? Uh, but maybe it, we can see how it's kind of fitting that this servant is assigned a place with the hypocrites. After all, he has lived his whole life as a hypocrite, right? Masquerading as a faithful and wise servant, when in reality he was a wicked servant. He's a hypocrite, so he's assigned a place where he belongs, with the hypocrites. A place not of the promised eternal blessing and happiness, but of eternal suffering and despair, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And now, of course, the master in this parable is Jesus. And actually, uh, there's a sense in which every Christian is a servant or slave of Jesus uh, as a part of his household, isn't it? Uh, As a part of his church. Uh, But actually, the the servant in this passage isn't just one of the servants, is he? He's a servant that's been put in charge of other servants. He's actually a recognized leader in Christ's church, if you like. Someone who's been put in charge of Christ's church to lead and care and feed the rest of Christ's servants. The rest of the flock, even. Could be a pastor in a local church or a leader of an AFES campus group. A preacher who appears on TV or on conference platforms. Could be someone who's written many books. Could be a well-known missionary. You get the idea. Now, of course, many of those servants that I've mentioned are wise and faithful servants, wonderful servants. But let's not kid ourselves. Not all of them are. Some of them are wicked servants. The sort of servant who uses their authority not to lovingly serve Christ's people, but to viciously abuse Christ's people. The sort of servant who uses their authority not to feed and care for Christ's flock, but to feed and care for themselves, lining their own pockets, increasing their wealth. Maybe you've known or heard of such a servant. We'll be assured that one day Christ will return. Christ, the master, will return. And the wicked servant will have to give an account to him. If they've spent their whole life uh, as a hypocrite, masquerading as a faithful and wise servant, when in reality they're a wicked servant, they'll be placed where they belong. Uh, One of the books I read when I was becoming a Christian uh, was called The Case for Faith. Maybe some of you have read this book, The Case for Faith. It's written by a man named Lee Strobel, who was an atheist and a journalist. He became a Christian uh, by interviewing a bunch of world-renowned scholars in, in different areas. He also wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Anyway, quite good books. And one of the books, uh, one of the, the people that, uh, that um, Lee Strobel interviewed in The Case for Faith was a man named Ravi Zacharias. And maybe some of you have heard of Ravi Zacharias. He had a decades-long ministry uh, being a, a Christian apologist, someone who uh, attempted to offer a persuasive defense of the Christian faith on platforms around the world. 
Uh, he headed up uh, an organization uh, that was called Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, which was perhaps should have set off some alarm bells when someone names their ministry after themselves. Uh, but anyway, there it is, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He was a servant who was responsible for other servants, many other servants. Ravi Zacharias, by all appearances, seemed to be a faithful and wise servant. And yet since he died in May last year, evidence has emerged, culminating in in an independent investigatory report last week, which showed that in reality, Ravi Zacharias, by all accounts, was a wicked servant. Someone who used his authority over decades to sexually abuse and manipulate Vulnerable women. Now, Ravi Zacharias isn't accountable to me. I'm not saying that. He's accountable to Jesus, the Master. But rest assured that Jesus, the Master's judgment is perfect and Ravi Zacharias will have to give an account to him. And it seems that Ravi Zacharias had a life of hypocrisy. You prepare for Christ's coming by serving faithfully in whatever position he's appointed you to. That's the point of this parable. Now, some of you are in, in vocational Christian ministry. Well, you hear that. You're a servant responsible for other servants. Not, not all of us are. So you serve faithfully wherever Christ has appointed you. At work, as a mum or dad, as a housemate. Well, you serve faithfully wherever Christ has appointed you, knowing that one day your master will return and you'll have to give an account to him. Well, then there's the third parable in, verses, uh, in chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Oh. Good, good. Thank you. Well, let, let's tune back in. Chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Uh, we've got the bridegroom surprising the foolish bridesmaids. Take a look look in verse 1. Jesus says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like, at that time I reckon, refers to the time of Jesus' coming, his return. So Jesus is saying, when I return, it's going to be a bit like this in the kingdom of heaven. To understand the parable, it might help to know a little bit about how uh, weddings kind of worked in first century Palestine. The, the first thing is that weddings in this, uh, in this time and place were very long things. Like I've been to some long weddings that go all day, but uh, these weddings would have gone for uh, at least a week, sometimes up to two weeks. Right? There's a very long wedding. Also very relaxed weddings. But there was no particular time at which the bridegroom would arrive to collect his bride to go and, and have the formalities and the, and the wedding feast. No particular time for that to happen. When the bridegroom did come, he would go to his bride's home, he would collect his bride, uh, and then they uh, and their bridesmaids or the rest of the bridal party would uh, process through the village until they came to the bridegroom's house where the ceremonies and celebrations would happen. There was no set time for that, but typically it would happen at night time and all of the bridal party would have torches because, let's face it, it looks all the more beautiful at night time to walk along with torches. You know, I guess that was the idea. I'm not sure, but this was the tradition. Once they arrived at the bridegroom's house, everyone went in, the doors were shut, and there was no possibility of late entrance. That's how it worked. 
the feasting and celebrations continued for a week or two. So in verse 1, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven will be like uh, ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet their bri- uh, the bridegroom. Uh, these ten, uh, uh, oh, sorry, I should have mentioned before. I'm calling them bridesmaids. The, the Greek word there uh, could be translated as virgins, and they may well have been young women who were virgins. But I actually think what's, you know, it's probably more central that they're a part of this bridal party rather than their kind of virginity or otherwise, right? So uh, I'm calling them bridesmaids throughout. These ten bridesmaids uh, have their lamps, which are probably, you know, obviously not electric lamps. They're more likely to be torches with rags hanging off. They were soaked in oil. Uh, so that they would keep a light. And in verse 2, we're told that five of the bridesmaids were foolish and five of the bridesmaids were wise. And verse 3, we see that the foolish bridesmaids were foolish because they didn't take any oil with them, which I take to mean that they didn't take any extra oil with them. Right? That they did soak their kind of torch in oil, but they didn't take any extra oil. In contrast, the wise bridesmaids in verse 4 did take some oil with them. Now, in the previous parable, you remember we had a master who was away for a really, really long time. This time we've got a bridegroom who must have missed the memo when his bride accepted him. Verse 5, he uh, took a long time in coming. So all the bridesmaids became drowsy and uh, and fell asleep. But verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom. I'd come out to meet him. Verse 7, all the virgins woke up, they trimmed their lamps. Oh, but in verse 8, the, the foolish bridesmaids are panicking. Wait a second, I've woken up, my torch has gone out, I've got no oil. What do they say? Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. But the wise ones reply, no, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who are selling oil, buy some for yourselves. You see the point? The, the wise bridesmaids were prepared. Uh, sorry, the wise bridesmaids were prepared for a long delay. They took some extra oil with them. They'd accounted for that. The foolish bridesmaids weren't. So the best they could do was go and buy some oil. But in verse ten, we see that while they were off on their way to buy oil, the bride, uh, the bridegroom arrived. Now the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. The foolish bridesmaids were ready and waiting for the bridegroom, but they weren't ready to wait long enough. And so they missed the bridegroom's coming. That's the the point. So in verse 11, once they've gone and bought their oil, they come to the bridegroom's house saying, knocking on the door, you can imagine them, Lord, Lord! But open the door for us. But the bridegroom says, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Jesus drives home the point of the parable. Keep watch, be ready, be alert, be prepared. For you do not know the day or the hour. But be prepared for Christ's coming, even when that coming, like the coming of the bridegroom in this passage, is long delayed. So how do we prepare? How do we prepare through this long delay? 
Well, some people think it's all about what the oil is in this parable. I won't spend lots of time on this, but they, some people say, look, the oil is good works. And there's some parallels for that. You can chase up kind of what you're the light of the world, like we light up the world by good works. It's not without a case, right? But do we really think these bridesmaids are being shut out of Christ's kingdom because they don't have enough good works? Or they didn't kind of get to a particular level of holiness, perhaps. Oh, I, don't, I don't think so. Like, uh, uh, along a similar train, some people think that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. You know, the idea you're anointed with oil, there's a picture of God's Spirit coming upon you. But really, are these bridesmaids being shut out of Christ's kingdom because somehow they don't have enough of Christ's Spirit? I mean, they do have oil, right? Just not enough. Did they miss the memo? Actually, the, the Pentecostals were right. There is a second baptism in the Spirit. Well, I don't think so. Right? In fact, I don't think it's really got much to do with the oil. It's actually got to do with the fact that the wise bridesmaids took extra oil. So they were prepared to persevere through a long delay and they were ready for the coming of the bridegroom. I think the point of this is that genuine Christians persevere in trusting Christ even when he is long delayed. Genuine Christians persevere in trusting Christ even when he is long delayed. Matthew 24, verses 12 and 13, the previous chapter, Jesus said that many professing Christians will fall away from their faith, but those who stand firm to the end will be saved. Genuine Christians persevere. You might remember the parable of the soils in Matthew 13. Uh, Jesus talked about the four different soils. I reckon these foolish bridesmaids are a bit like the, the seed of God's word that fell in rocky ground. These foolish bridesmaids hear the word of God. They receive it with joy. They look like they're Christians. But then because the word of God hasn't taken root deeply in their heart, then when the first sign of trouble and persecution and hardship comes, they fall away. They don't persevere to the end. Genuine Christians persevere. Now, these foolish bridesmaids are people who look like Christians. They look like they're a part of the bride of Christ. They spend lots of time with Christians. They hang out with Christians. But in, their end, but in the end, they're shown not to be Christians because they fail to persevere to the end and they're not ready for Christ's coming. You prepare for Christ's coming by persevering in trusting him, even when his coming is long delayed. First parable, be spiritually ready. Second parable, be faithful in whatever position Christ has appointed you to. Third parable, persevere in trusting Christ, even when he's long delayed. So we come to the fourth parable, where the master surprises the lazy servant. Again, verse 14, we've got a master uh, with some slaves. Once again, not endorsing slavery, but Jesus, with this slavery idea, is making a point about how God has designed us as human beings. Right? To, to be a human being is to be a servant, It's to be a slave of someone or something. That's what it means to be human. That's how God's wired us. As Bob Dylan says, everybody's got to serve somebody. So you can either be a slave to sin, which is an oppressive and burdensome slavery, or you can be a slave to Christ, which is a liberating and life-giving slavery. 
And you'll see how the slaves have different perceptions of their master as we go through this parable. Uh, it's also worth knowing that in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, uh, some slaves did do kind of really quite menial work uh, around their master's property. Uh, other slaves, in contrast, did uh, a really meaningful work. Right? For example, some slaves would have acted as accountants who managed their, uh, their master's business interests. Uh, and that's what the slaves in this parable seem to be doing. So the master's going on a journey, uh, and he calls uh, his slaves together to entrust his wealth to them. Uh, to one, he gives five bags of gold. I think uh, Ariel read from a slightly different translation, which is fine. Uh, but the NIV, which you guys might have in front of you, five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, uh, and to another one bag of gold. Uh, actually, we don't know for sure that it's gold, is it? It could be copper, it could be silver. And as Ariel's translation showed, you might see in the footnote in your Bible uh, that the word bags of gold there is literally the word talents. Uh, that, that's the word that, that Ariel read out. And, and, and that's, that's the correct word. Uh, but the, the NIV translators don't translate it as talents because they know that when we hear the word talents, what do we automatically think of? We think of a special gift or ability that someone might have. But in Jesus' day, a talent was a unit of weight, a measure, something that you might use to, to measure out a, a certain number of bit of copper or gold or silver. As the footnote says, in Jesus' day, a talent uh, was the equivalent of 20 years' work for a day laborer, even for one of these slaves. You get the idea. Imagine getting the next 20 years of your pay in advance. That's, a, that's quite a lot of money. Imagine getting the next 20 years of your pay times two in advance or times five in advance. This master is abundantly wealthy and he's generously entrusting his wealth to his slaves. Of course, they all see, receive different amounts because the master knows his slaves. So at the end of verse 15, he gives to each of them according to their ability. He's made an assessment on which amount of his wealth he can entrust to them uh, that he thinks they'll be faithful with managing. So the master goes on his journey, verse 16. We see that the slave who's been given five talents, uh, he seems eager to please his master. Uh, he seems to have a perception of his master that his master is good and generous. So immediately he puts his master's wealth to work, uh, probably starting some sort of business through which he grew the five talents into ten talents. Oh, that's some good productivity there. Uh, likewise, uh, the slave who'd been given two talents grew it into four talents. But verse 18, we see that the one who'd been entrusted with one talent didn't put it to work at all. Uh, instead, he dug a hole and buried it. Uh, so in verse 19, we see again, look at verse 19, after a long time. Now, some people think, oh, Jesus, Jesus seemed to think he was going to return immediately. Right? Therefore, you know, Christianity is bogus because Jesus didn't even know when he was coming. You know, no, Jesus is pretty clear. He's not going to come back for a long time. Anyway, I don't know how you could miss it. After a long time, the master returns to settle accounts with his slaves. Verse 20, the man who'd received five talents brings his ten talents to the master and he receives his reward. Verse 21, it's in three parts. First, he receives his master's praise and approval. Well done, good and faithful servant. A second, he receives that increased responsibility. 
money. He was faithful with what his master quite incredibly deems to be few things when you consider the amount of wealth, right? You've been faithful with few things. And so now he gets to be in charge of many things. And third, he gets to share in his master's happiness. It's a wonderful picture of mutual delight and joy in one another, in being in one another's company. In verses 22 and 23, the same thing happens with the the slave who'd been given two talents, or he presents his four talents. And then verse 24, the slave who'd been given one talent says, Master, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. Uh, Here is what belongs to you. Either the first two slaves really seem to delight in serving their master. They get great joy from it. Not this slave. But this slave accuses his master of being hard and harsh and unfair. And there's even a note of you might even be an exploitative master. You harvest where you haven't sown and gather where you haven't scattered seed, he says. So this slave kind of thinks to himself, given what I know about how, what a harsh and exploitative master I have, why would I take the risk of trying to do something with what is entrusted to me? Oh, well, why don't I just bury it in the ground and then at least I can give him back what belongs to him. He doesn't really trust me anyway, right? That's why he only gave me one talent in the first place. Now, of course, this slave has a hopelessly distorted picture of his master. His master had generously given to him out of his abundant wealth, and yet this slave resents him. He has the audacity to blame him for his own laziness. And at an even more basic level than that, he fails to understand his obligations to his master. It's not his job to question his master's character or motives, but simply to do what his master says. So in verse 26, the master says, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered seed. Now, I don't think the master's saying this is what I'm actually like. He's saying, if you honestly believe that that's what I was like then surely you should have at least put my money in the bank so I could receive it back with interest. And then in verse 27, oh, sorry, uh, that is receive it back with interest. So verses 28 and 29, the talent entrusted to the lazy servant is given to the man with 10 talents. And Jesus says that this is in line with how the kingdom works. And Jesus talked about this back in Matthew 13. I can't remember the verses, but you can look it up in Matthew 13. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. In the context, those who have are those who have shown themselves to be true members of Christ's kingdom by faithfully growing and developing and improving all that Christ has entrusted to them. Christ says they will be given an abundance. Not necessarily abundance in this life, but they will receive abundant blessings when they enter into their master's happiness. 
Whereas the one who does not have is the one who has shown himself to not be a true member of Christ's kingdom by being wicked and lazy with all that Christ has entrusted. So the privileges of the kingdom will be stripped from them. Look in verse 30. The wicked and lazy servant is banished from the master's presence into a place of eternal distress and suffering. We prepare for Christ's coming by faithfully growing, by improving, by developing all that Christ has entrusted to us. I think that's the point of the parable. What's he entrusted to us? Well, of course, everything in the end. Everything we have is a, is a gift from Christ. But uh, a couple of specifics. He's entrusted to us the gift of the gospel, hasn't he? A wonderful treasure. Not for us to go and dig a hole and hide in the ground, but to proclaim, Matthew 28, to people of all nations that the work of the gospel might, might not stagnate, but grow. That's what it means to to, uh, to be faithful with what Christ has entrusted to us. Likewise, Christ has entrusted us with the gift of holiness. Right? By God's grace, through faith in Christ, we have been declared holy in God's sight. But does that mean we sit on our laurels and stay as we are? No. We know where to work out our faith with fear and trembling. We're to seek to grow in holiness, to be holy as our Father is holy, to put to death sin, to walk in step with the Spirit. Christ has entrusted us with the gift of time. Right? Every minute we get is a gift from him. That's where to count. We're to ask the Lord to teach us to number our days, to put our time to work for the growth of his kingdom. He's entrusted us with the gift of treasure. Right? Any money we have, whether it's a lot or a little, is a gift from Christ. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So we're, to call, we're called to use what Christ has entrusted to us, not just to grow our own little kingdoms, but to grow the kingdom of Christ. And of course, Christ has entrusted us with the gift of talents, in that sense that we normally hear it. You know? Special gifts, abilities. And we're called to put those talents to work, aren't we? Remember the passages about spiritual gifts. He who has the gift of teaching should teach. Has the gift of serving should serve. We're called to use and improve and develop those talents for the growth of the kingdom of Christ and his glory. We prepare for Christ's coming by faithfully uh, growing all that he has entrusted to us. So let me urge you today, summary point. Start preparing now for Christ's coming, uh, for his surprising, long-delayed, but certain coming. My summary of the passage. Start preparing now for Christ's surprising, long-delayed, but certain coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you for uh, everyone's perseverance through some technical hitches. Uh, we pray that your word uh, would have fallen in good soil, uh, taken root and bearing fruit, uh, 30, 60, and 100 fold are such that we would start preparing today uh, for the coming of our Lord Jesus. His surprising, long delayed, uh, but certain coming. Amen.